Welcome back. I'm visiting here today with Keith Van Sickle. Keith, welcome to today's show. Thanks for having me. So, Keith, you've had a remarkable uh, journey through life so far. You have a former CFO, book author, entrepreneur. For the listeners here, can you give your background of some of the, you know, let's start from your schooling and and, uh, bring it up. Sure. So, I'm a local boy, grew up in Alameda, uh, did my engineering degree locally also, went to Stanford, um, and have spent uh, all of my career in high tech, all of my career in Silicon Valley companies. Um, I've been in manufacturing, marketing, customer service. Uh, Most of my career is in finance. I was a startup CFO, which was fun. Uh, But uh, probably the most interesting thing I did was when I had the opportunity 20 years ago to move to Switzerland. So I had a five-year expat assignment. My wife and I moved to Switzerland, and uh, it changed our lives. It It was exciting professionally, but more than that, we lived in the center of Europe. We were able to travel all the time. We've always liked to travel. I uh, spent a term in England as a student at Stanford. I, uh, Before I went back to graduate school, I backpacked around the world for six months. We've always liked to travel. But, but even more than that, it was the opportunity to live in another country and learn how it's different from here. If you people <clears throat> get the opportunity to, uh, to, to step out of the boundaries of this country and, mm-hmm. and see what it's like. So what drove you to say, you know, to finally say, you know, we're, we're going to do this? Because obviously you had choices of, mm-hmm. you know, Stanford grad and your experience. You could have just stayed locally. But what, what really was inspiring you to go to the other country? It was a chance to really live somewhere else and see how people live differently. We knew it would be hard because we didn't speak the language. It's a, We were in the French-speaking part of the country. We didn't speak French. And, and I have to say, the first year was hard because you're stupid every day. You don't know how to go to the store. It took me a week to figure out how to buy auto insurance because it's different. Uh, you know, we'd been there about six months and my wife turned to me with a forlorn look on her face and said, you know, I used to be competent and you, it's very humbling. But at the same time, you see that people live differently in a way that sounds funny until you go through it. So, the Swiss, even though they are a remarkably hardworking society with an extremely successful economy, they take their lunch breaks. You know, my wife was uh, eating a sandwich at a desk once and a colleague admonished her. He said, that's not healthy. You have to take a proper lunch. They take all of their four weeks of vacation and everything shuts down on the weekend. You know, all the stores close at midday on Saturday. And Saturday afternoon and Sunday are really a day of rest. You have to stop working. So you read a book or you hike or you have a long family lunch or dinner. And it was hard to get used to that at first, but we realized they've got something good going on. Maybe we can learn some of this. And and it's nice to live that way and, and experience in a way you can't understand unless you've actually been in it. So five years end. Mm-hmm. You're in Switzerland. You you come back, mm-hmm. and uh, I guess you start in the Bay Area. You relocate back to the Bay Area. Came back to the Bay Area, joined a startup. Okay, um, kept me busy for a while. My wife took a job that had a lot of travel, kept her busy for a while. But we always had a dream of wanting to do this again, to live in another country. Uh, we kind of looked around for another expat assignment, but they're they're very rare. They're hard to find. We were very fortunate to have had one. Mm-hmm. Um, so that 
that didn't work. So uh, eventually we decided to invent our own expat gig. <laughs> oh, now that's very creative. <laughs> so we, uh, we thought, well, if we do consulting, we can moderate our work so that we could work a lot part of the year and be abroad part of the year. So we each quit our jobs, which I have to say was pretty scary, and we built our consulting practice, and we decided we will uh, we'll go to France. We liked France. We'd begun to learn a little bit of French. We liked the country. We liked the food. We liked the environment. And we'd go for three months, which is how long you can stay without a special visa. And we'll see, first time we did it 10 years ago was, can this work? Can we actually live in another country? Can we learn the language? Can we make friends? Can we find enough to do? Because we were doing some work from a distance, but not much. And uh, happily, the first experiment went well. We've gone back every year since. We made a lot of mistakes at the beginning. And uh, I got I to gotta say, it's pretty hard to learn a foreign language in your 50s. <laughs> but we did. So I'm just curious, uh, you know, your startup CFO out here locally, you're going to France, mm -hmm. different country, different culture. Mm -hmm. what, was your, what was the foundation of your consulting or your advisory services when you did this, quote, uh, expat company? Mm -hmm. um, I had been, I'd spent a lot part of my career in finance. I'd been a CFO for startup from the very early days. And so I am a uh, consulting CFO for startup companies in the Valley. Any difference, though, in doing business in Europe versus the U.S.? Well, I, when I'm working in Europe, I'm working for U.S. companies. Okay. Was that your question, or was it regarding Yeah, yeah, that, that's good. Okay, yeah. so basically you're, you're an advisor to U.S. companies on, on site and exactly. France. Okay. Yeah. Hey, Keith, I need to take a quick break. I'm visiting okay. here today with Keith uh, Von Sickle, and we'll be right back after these messages. can't take your wealth with you, spend time with your family. Welcome back. I'm busy here today with Keith Von Sickle, and uh, Keith's been a former CFO for startup companies. A lot of good experience. Uh, yeah, we've been talking about going abroad, though, and uh, he did not once, but twice, and yeah, we talked about lifestyle of Europe and uh, that, that fast food doesn't seem to be part of the equation. What, why do you think that is? You know, the, well, France in particular, um, you know, they appreciate the, the small things in life. You can spend a remarkable amount of time with French people talking about food and wine and how you prepared the fish and where did you get your vegetables. And it's just, it, it's not just the food, but a meal is the center of family life. It is the center of life with friends. So it's not just the food, but it's spending time at the table. You know, I've had six-hour lunches, and they just go by in a flash. Not because it's the food, but because it's how you are part of a community, how you're part of a family, how you share experiences together. It's really a, it, it's a beautiful thing what they do. Um, they, you know, in, in France in particular, work is not the be-all and end-all. Well, I'll admit the French maybe could work a little bit harder. Their economy might be a little bit better. But uh, but work isn't the only thing. 
and food is one of the things that uh, they spend time on because it's a way to bring people together, I think. So after the after this second uh, expat assignment, mm-hmm. which uh, you eventually come back to the U.S., and uh, what, what, what are some of the things that you, you ventured into after that? Well, so I continue to go back to France every year. Okay. So it's a three-month in France, nine-month in California life. Mm-hmm. And it's nice because it allows us to enjoy each. They're two very different places, each of which we love a lot. And so in California, I continue to do my consulting work. So I continue to work with startups. You know, every few years, the the companies, my clients turn over because either they've they've grown to the point where they need somebody full-time. I help them hire a full-time CFO and they continue on with their success or being the Silicon Valley, they die. You know, others go away. And so my client base tends to turn over every few years for one reason or the other. I'm just curious, a company coming to you saying, hey, we need a CFO. What, mm-hmm. what size do you typically work with uh, the company? Are they very early st- seed stage? Are they series A? Is there a point where you say, hey, yeah, I don't want to get that deep into this growth, or they're they're usually at the point. So they're usually an A or later stage. Okay. So they're big enough that they need CFO kind of help, but they're not so big that they need it full time. Okay. So I'll work on, you know, business planning or board prep or fundraising or working with lines of credit with uh, financial institutions, etc. And that might be a quarter time. Eventually, as they get bigger, they need more of that kind of help to the point where they need somebody full-time. So if they're really small, there's not much to do. It's, you know, six engineers and a, and a cat, and they're inventing their little product. Mm-hmm. Um, when they get bigger, they need somebody to, who can give them enough time that they should go with somebody full-time. Okay, okay. So what advice would you have for somebody wanting to live abroad? Boy, if they want to live abroad full-time, you need a reason to be there to get a visa, so it probably means a job. If it's somebody who's retired and wants to move abroad, you can still get visas. It's different. My own advice is to either go to an English-speaking country or learn the language. There are a lot of people where we are in Provence who are, for example, British expats or American expats who never learn the language and just hang around with each other. And that can be a pleasant life. It's a nice part of the world. The food is good. The weather is nice. But I think you you miss a lot if you don't speak enough of the language to meet people, understand where you're living, appreciate what's going on, read the newspaper, watch television. When we were in Switzerland, we never really learned the language, and so that was a missed opportunity. We only met people who spoke English. We never really got under the covers of Swiss society. And in France, we feel like we have a much deeper appreciation for the country and how different it is and how people are different than we would if we only spoke with other English speakers. So the language is hard, but it's it's fundamental. Thank you. I'm visiting here today with Keith Van Sickle. He's an early startup CFO, consultant, and uh, and also he's a book author. So I need to take a quick break, Keith, and right after these messages, I want to get into the new book that you, you, you recently released. Uh, I'll be right back after these messages. I love fishing, you know, with my family. I think it would be easier to use a net. It was so much fun. The times when we are together, it makes it all all the more worth it. Having Dad teach them how to, like, cast a fly rod and... As long as we're doing stuff together, we're having fun. Some people see a father and a son fishing together. 
well others see a succession plan. Welcome back. I'm visiting here today with Keith Von Sickle. Keith's a former CFO, consultant, and also he's a book author. And recently, uh, Keith, you uh, you released a book called One Sip, at T- One Sip at a Time, Learning to Live in Province. And and um, I want to I want to spend some time in this segment talking about inspiration behind this book. Yeah, mm-hmm. first of all, that the title, One Sip at a Time, very catchy. Thank you. <laughs> so uh, yeah, the background of the book. <clears throat> You know, because we go abroad every year uh, and because friends and family, when we're gone, will say, hey, what are you doing? I eventually got tired of writing emails telling everybody what we're doing and started a travel blog. So every year I do a travel blog and I talk about what we're doing with an emphasis on funny stories. Here's something silly we did that, you know, if you have the right attitude, it becomes a funny story. Here's observations on life in France. So light fun stories that my friends and family have enjoyed. And from time to time, one would say, you should turn this into a book. And of course, my response was, I'm not going to quit my day job. Thank you for the compliment, but it's just a blog. But I eventually decided, well, let me check. I've got a friend who's a well-known author. You know, we go back to college days. And I said, look, George, what do you think of this blog? Is there any material there to create a book? And he surprised me by saying, yeah, I think there is. Um, you know, it, it would be a light, fun book that would put a smile on your face, and there's a place in the world for books like that. Uh, but two caveats. You're an unknown author, and you're not going to find a publishing house that's going to give you a book contract. You're going to do this on your own. You're going to be self-published. And two, the average self-published book sells 250 copies. So if you go in with that attitude and you understand that's the deal, then you should do it. I think it'd be a fun project and I'll, I'll advise you from time to time if you need help. So I spent the next year taking these stories and wrapping them into a book and finding a book cover designer and figuring out how to publish on CreateSpace, which is Amazon's platform. And, uh, and the book came out six months ago and I've since done a lot of time marketing the book because, uh, most authors don't want to market their book, but guess what? There are 75,000 new books a year, and how are they going to find yours? And so, so far I've sold several thousand books, and I'm an Amazon bestseller, and readers like it. Excellent. It's so, really, the reviews are gratifying. Excellent. So, yeah, the, the, the blessing of Amazon, you can find the book one sip at a time mm-hmm. online. So, online. So let's, let's, let's run through. What are some of the things, uh, the points you touch on learning to live in province? Mm-hmm. Provence. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, first of all, that's a city in France. Uh, so Provence, when people sometimes talk about the south of France, okay. they're usually talking about Provence, which is a region. Region. Okay. So the biggest city is um, Marseille, the big port city, or Avignon, which was the center of the Catholic Church for a hundred years in the 13th uh-huh. century. So it's that area. Um, it's famous for uh, hilltop, charming hilltop villages. Lavender, the pink flamingos of the Camargue, uh, lots of Roman history. You know, this was one of the centers of, of the Roman Empire in ancient France. So there are lots of uh, ruins and Roman-style events that take place. So it's, a, it's a very interesting area. We weren't sure when we got there whether we'd be able to spend, again, three months there and not be bored, but there's lots to do and see, and particularly with our 
our French friends who we've made over time. So a person reading the book, what should they expect to find? Is it a, a, a deep read, a quick read? Well, you know, how does it, how does it flow? It's a light, fun read. It's, uh, it'd be great for reading on an airplane or in an airport lounge or waiting for jury duty. It's not a heavy read at all. It's 60 short chapters, each a funny story, um, which in total tell the story of our first few years there as we were learning to live in another country and some of the mistakes we made and some of the funny things that happened to us. Let's hear, let's hear a couple of those stories. Uh, oh, so... Uh, I was once uh, rejected as a blood donor in France uh, due to insufficient command of the French language. It turns out that when you donate blood in France, you have to have a private interview with a doctor to make sure you haven't been participating in risky behaviors that might make the blood tainted. And so it turns out that uh, after we went back and forth a few minutes, he finally closed my file, wrote a note. I said, am I not going to be able to give blood? He said, no, you need to learn better French. We can't do the interview. But you can have orange juice and cookies if you'd like. <laughs> you remind me of the guy who uh, stayed up all night studying for his blood test. Right. <laughs> Only in France, I guess. You do have a real you really, requirement. We really do, yeah. So I, I failed that uh, that blood test. Another time, I we had just gotten there for one of our trips. We just picked up our rental car. I went to a parking lot uh you know, my wife was somewhere else. I got in the car. I, you know, I hit the, the button, mm-hmm. the lights flashed. I got in the car, and it turned out I'd gotten in somebody else's car. They looked oh, kind of alike. Fun. Yeah. All I knew was as soon as I got in, a lady was tapping on the window and, and yelling at me in French. And I, I didn't know what she was saying because my French was kind of rusty, and she yelled a few times, and I'm trying to get out of the car. And I finally realized she's saying, sir, you are in my car. And... <laughs> I looked around, and she had a pack of cigarettes and baby stuff in the back. And I'm like, oh, my God, this is not my car. But I couldn't really explain myself because my French just froze up. And uh, so I got out, and she's thinking, who doesn't know their own car? And who can't even speak back to me? Humiliating, but, you know, you move on. It's a good story, though. It's a good story. (laughs) Exactly, right? You have to have a sense of humor because you're going to do lots of dumb stuff and be incompetent. And that's okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, what are some of the, uh, the you know, the, in addition to the funny stories uh, coming? What are some of the, the the deeper memories that you had there in Provence? Certainly, time with our friends. I mean, okay. we have friends in France that are as good as our friends in the states. Mm-hmm. And um, you know, one of the things the French that I admire that I think we can learn from them because they're very good at it is that they're able to disagree strongly without taking it personally and without being disagreeable. So they can talk about things which are fundamental and emotional and they have strong feelings about, but be friends. And yet, in the States, too often if we disagree with someone, we take it personally or we think they're a bad person. Gee, you support this political candidate. You're a bad person. We've seen that especially in the last election where families are torn because we just happen to have different political opinions but it becomes personal. Um, whereas in France, I remember uh, once when Edward Snowden was revealing secrets all the time, and one of the secrets was that the U.S. was spying on France, and it was a huge story in France. We happened to have friends over that week, that week, front page news every day. In the middle of dinner, my wife says, so what does everybody think of Edward Snowden? And it was a hot, hot, hot discussion. And we felt 
we didn't feel under attack. We felt maybe some of the things that our government had done they disagreed with. Okay, that's fine. Maybe we did too. I don't know. Uh, but everybody staked out their position. It went on for a while. But at the end, it was, okay, let's talk about something else and who's ready for dessert. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't personal. They're brilliantly you know, able to do that in a way we could learn from. Keith, in this last segment, I, there's something that we, we talked about off air, uh, about some of the little projects you've done in giving back. And I'd like you to share for your listeners what those projects are and what you've learned in the process of giving back. Sure. So um, I put myself through college and received a lot of scholarship and financial aid assistance to do that, for which I am very grateful. And so in 1987, my wife and I decided to start our own scholarship foundation to help students from my hometown of Alameda uh, go to college. Uh, My parents were teachers in the public school system, both of them, and so we named it after them in honor of their great accomplishments, and we limit it to folks from the public high schools to, again, support public education in Alameda. And so every year we uh, help a young boy or girl go to college. We've been doing it uh, in May. We, we granted our 30th annual scholarship. And, uh, and in addition to the financial aid, which is important, we also stay in touch with the students. We meet with them throughout the year. We call or email because uh, most of them are the first in their family to go to college. Uh, Many of them are first-generation Americans and therefore um, may need help understanding how things work or just encouragement. Sometimes it's very important to have somebody in your corner cheering you on when you're in a tough spot. And uh, it's been enormously gratifying to to stay in touch with these students or just to, to see what they've done because some come from terribly difficult backgrounds. We, One of our current students uh, spent part of her high school years in Alameda living in a campground because that's all her family could afford. Wow. And yet <clears throat> she was a top student. She was student body president and she, she created a little club in her school to collect school supplies for less advantaged kids. And, and it's just remarkable. Here's somebody who has nothing who is trying to help others. And it's just when you meet students like that, it's just inspiring. You know, well, I, you <clears throat> know I, I imagine part of the, the difficulty <clears throat> of uh, working with disadvantaged children, what you cited was a great example. But I think it's a little, uh, it's not typically the case. Uh, some of these kids, they, they don't have the, the support of a good family infrastructure and encouragement from the house. How do you go about ensuring that if you're, if you're, giving them a scholarship that you're not just handing them money and say, hey, good luck to you. Uh, mm-hmm. how, how do you stay involved? Is there a process for accountability? I imagine as a CFO, you probably built on some measures of how, making sure they succeed. So the scholarship is, uh, is not granted all at once. It's granted over four years. Okay. So, so if they were to go off the rails, we might, well, we would stop the scholarship. Um, we don't have a strict um, academic test for them, but we do stay in touch. So yeah. we see how they're doing. We have the right to ask for uh, transcripts if we'd like. But really by staying in touch, you can see what's going on. Um, we don't want to be over-involved in their lives. You know, if somebody says, look, I, I appreciate the money, but I, I don't need the help. You know, I'll talk to you once a year, but 
I don't, I don't need any more than that. We respect that as well mm-hmm. because some of the students are more self-sufficient than others. Yeah. Um, and, and I don't think any of them really need us, but we think in some cases we have helped. In fact, uh, we had one young lady, <clears throat> one of our early scholarship winners, who was a, a single mom who was going to college and working and raising a child. And we, you know, we really tried to buck her up as best we could when we met with her. But uh, after a couple of years, she met a nice young man, got married, dropped out of school, and moved away. And this was before the Internet, so we lost touch with her. Uh, until about five years ago when she tracked us down, uh, we ended up having dinner together down in San Diego where she lives. It turned out she had gone back to school eventually, got her degree, has a great job, has a nice career. And the thing she wanted to tell us was that uh, we had made a big difference in her life because we had believed in her when not many people believed in her. So it was uh, immensely gratifying. Thank you for sharing that. And I I think that that's one of the things in life, that we have our choices and Find more often not than when when we step out to do something of a good Samaritan character. No one's really requiring it. There's something that we gain, although we weren't seeking for it. And I appreciate you sharing that. Yeah, the Im- impact you made. So, Keith, unfortunately, we're out of time today. Uh, but I, uh, uh, for the listeners out there who uh, who like to, to tune in and, and see the complete interview with Keith, we do post it on uh, groco.com, G-R-O-C-O.com. We'll have a full transcript plus more information if people are interested in living and residing in Alameda on the scholarship program Keith does. Uh, they can find it there. So, Keith, thanks. Thanks again for being with us today. Thanks for having me. <laughs>